Welcome to the Stories We Don't Tell, a podcast about storytelling. So, welcome to the Stories We Don't Tell, everybody. My name is Stefan Hosteter. I'm here in studio. I'm going to say studio because, you know, why not? Every room could be a studio. It has four walls. Right? And a door. A ceiling. A floor. Nice. Excellent. <laughs> well done. Uh, with Joey Jacob, uh, who has told stories in our event before uh, and also has a life outside of that. Um, and we're going to learn about both those things today, I think. Uh, as Paul sort of sits uh, to my right and like slowly gets more annoyed that I'm not doing a good job interviewing. Um, He's already touching his face. Yeah, Should exactly. We be worried. Probably. If you could give like an update on every every like five minutes of of how close Paul's hand is to his face, <laughs> that would be good. So we know exactly just how exasperated I've made him. It left and came back. Because yeah, right, he's just like right outside my head. Like, <laughs> I can't see him out of my corner of my eye. He, he did just bite his fingernail. Nice. Nice job, Paul. Um, okay, so what are we doing here? Uh, this is part two. Actually, no, it's splitting part four. Um, we recorded it second, but it'll be played fourth. Uh, so just so everyone knows that fun fact. Um, of our series of, of conversations with people who are involved, uh, who have told the story with us before and do other things in their life. And we're sort of interested in how storytelling intersects with life, generally speaking. Joey Jacob here uh, is a, uh, a writer, a comedian, a radio host, uh, an occasional fruit picker, uh, and, uh, and an academic and PhD holder. Uh, also, like not only hold it, you actually, I believe, also did the things to earn it. You know, like did. someone didn't just hand you a PhD at some point. I believe you actually got a PhD. It is currently framed in my closet. In your closet. Yes. Um, so, and how was that intro? Did I do an ed- a decent job at all? Yes. Uh, all of that addressed things that I have been, mm. mostly past tense, but it was nice to think about them being a part of me still. So. All right. So, what yes. are you now? Uh, I still write. All right. Um, I write for fun, and people pay me to do it. So, somewhat, right? A little. They pay you a little bit, or they don't, or they don't write, or you don't write that much. Oh no, I write a lot. Oh, okay, so the, the the pay is poor as a as a as a, as a writer for hire. No, that's also I'm also I'm just uh, I'm it's more like it's new to my life to be paid. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. Right. Okay. So, so they, you've been paid a little bit because you've just started doing this. That's right. For yeah. Paying. Okay. Yeah. Great. Yeah. So, no one should think that Joey here is. If you listen to this and you are paying Joey, uh, it is a perfectly reasonable amount of money. Please continue to do so. Yes, please. <laughs> uh, so, so in all of these things that you have been at some point, uh, I presume you've sort of seen storytelling through the through come out in some ways. Um, or else he would not have agreed to do this interview. Uh, so, right. yes. Uh, so yes. are you in any way able to speak to how it affects any of those places? Definitely. Uh, so I think the way that it has mostly come into my life is through, uh, I mean, storytelling is this idea of, of constructing a narrative, um, which, of course, there's different ways to tell stories. But for me, it involves um, some cohesive idea with which to adhere a bunch of other ideas to. So um, whether or not I'm writing <laughs> things that might be like policy or whether or not I'm writing a ridiculous story about my family, uh, I still think that they're woven quite heavily around um, a consistent narrative. Or even, to talk about it from an academic way, the narrative is more like a thesis statement. Hmm. So 
that's really how I think of. Right, that makes sense. Yeah. So I'm going to d- dive a little bit into your PhD because I personally find it super interesting and also crazy depressing. Um, and arguably from a concept of uh, stories you don't tell, it may be the ult- one of the, kind of an example of kind of the ultimate things a society doesn't talk about. Uh, um, mm-hmm, could mm-hmm. you briefly explain to our listeners what your PhD was about? Like the, uh, the research I did? Yeah. Mm, okay. Uh, so I, uh, I looked at uh, the photographs, um, primarily the photographs from uh, Abu Ghraib, the uh, Iraqi prison uh, that the U.S. occupied. Um, the photos were taken in, in 2003, and they became public in 2004. And the, there was a, there was a, uh, an academic a scholarly but also cultural critic uh, thought at the time that these were the worst photos of their kind and um, I didn't completely agree with that um, and instead was thinking that well in some ways we can never know for sure but so what I ended up doing uh, was was looking back through war photos uh, throughout history and I went back um, through various wars uh, that I could get photo access to um, in a bunch of different archives. Uh, so I looked at World War I photos and World War II. To be fair, it was, a, it was a more of a preliminary investigation because there's a lot of other wars that uh, have photos, photographic evidence that could be considered. But um, really what I wanted to do, I, I made this typology or uh, like a, a comparison of about 60 photos and to show the different visual elements that you could see throughout time and the, the build, the progression of, of the ways in which um, detainees or uh, prisoners of war were referred to in the photographs in relation to those who took them. Right. Yeah, that's, I, think that's the, I think that's the thing that's, that I found so different, which is that these are people telling, these are people, the people taking these photos are people committing atrocities. Yes. Like, uh, uh, unbelievably awful atrocities. And then they're taking these photos of these experiences as as trophies, almost. And yes. Like they're they're, they're, they're yeah. literally telling a story. They're telling a story of their own atrocity yeah. as if it was not an atrocity. It's, it's such a weird dynamic. Yeah, and this was the, I mean, the narrative that I ended up, um, weaving the whole, uh, you know, the whole dissertation around was, uh, which I didn't actually get to until a couple of years into the research because it takes a long time to, to really build a, a narrative. Um, but this idea was that the photos, even though they appear to be centered on the detainees or prisoners of war, they are in fact actually about those who take the photos. And um, which is a bit of a, a hard, uh, reality to come to that even though the the framing might suggest otherwise they're really they're they're taken for the people who who did commit the atrocities right the subjects of the photo aren't the subjects of the photo in some way no no they they are uh, right yeah exactly <laughs> um and so and so clearly that's like that is that is a very heavy topic um and and i'm sure like throughout that sort of thing that like trying to trying to talk about that like it's a weird narrative in that it's it's so rarely i cannot think of another time someone talks like tells that particular avenue of like here's people coming out and doing very bad things um and 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 yet we'll and we're going to show you about how you're doing very bad like it's just it it's was so uniquely different 
Um, but to sort of, so yeah, I, I don't have a question there. It just was one of those things where it's like, what is going on here? Um, is there anything, you, any takeaways you got from this thing beyond sort of like your, your ultimate thesis statement sort of thing? I mean, I'm much happier now. Right, because you're not you're finished. Yeah. But, but I mean, that's, uh, I don't know. I mean, it was uh, some takeaways about the research itself. Or about the process <laughs> or about, you know, anything really. Don't do a PhD. Right. Although do a PhD because it's fun, sort of. This particular PhD, I imagine, is like <laughs> maybe interesting. Fun seems like an inter- as, a, as a particular word. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you, you know, I had a good time in the sense that uh, I really thought this was a problem. I mean, I wouldn't even say that it's solved. It was more just uh, a way to think about something that was really challenging. And I mean, some, yeah, I guess some interesting takeaways that came out of it was how to think about the things that people do to other people that are awful and what the mm, what the value of these awful things are mm. and I use that word I, it's, a, it's a weird word to use in this way but really it, that there were these photos had value for the people who took them and it's weird to try to separate and I don't, I don't think I, I did not and I think it's a good thing to not successfully separate uh, that uh, like you can't just talk about these strictly as something that's has value because it divorces you know human experience and suffering but but to really just try to put that on hold for a little bit to think about what it means to find value in these photos was um was interesting i think it in uh, just a, a a human takeaway for me was was being able to just to be able to contemplate a little bit more and sit with the more difficult and challenging things about Humanity, right? And did you find that? Did you find it easier as you sort of understood the narrative? Like as you sort of when you found that sort of understanding of the fact that the subjects weren't the subjects, did you find like the process started flowing a little better? Like, did you, was was when you understood the sort of story you were seeing through the through the photos? Did it did it make the sort of understanding those difficult pieces or sort of like did that help you sort of get to the bottom of sort of what you're looking for? Yeah, yeah. I mean, because a lot of the the early photos. Um, there would never, like one of the one of the key findings that I found was that there would never be, you know, like soldiers who would take the photos wouldn't pose with with dead bodies or wouldn't pose with somebody who was suffering in photos, you know, from World War One or World War Two or or time time frames in between there. They would either just take pictures of dead bodies and not be standing in the photos, or um, they'd be standing like if if a if a a pilot died in a plane crash, they wouldn't they'd pose with the crashed plane, but the body would have been removed already. That sort of progression of, of uh, uh, I, I'm, I'm having a hard time looping it right back to what you said, but right. that, that, that felt that important, right? Yeah, yeah, that felt important. Okay. Um, so to, to, to move off the most depressing topic I could possibly think of, do something slightly lighter, so then we can segue into the story. Although thank you, because I, now that it's over, I don't really get to talk about it much. So yeah, fair enough. It remains fun. a fascinating, like it's, it's, it really is something we don't talk about at all. It's, it's a, the weirdest that you, like we sweep under the rug oh, yeah. immediately and stop talking about it. Like when was the last time anyone has heard the, Abu Ghraib in the, in conversation in 10 years? And yet the U.S. did that and it's awful. Yeah. Yeah. And also, uh, it's a, it's a nice conversation stopper. Right. Yeah. Whenever, whenever somebody for that seven years of my life would ask what I was doing that right. I had just met, and then I tell them, I can't, I can't tell you how many times people either ended the conversation or looked at me and asked me if I was okay. Right. Or just 
actually change the conversation. Like mm. had like a cloud go over their eyes and then be like, what do you like to eat? Or whatever. Well, on that topic, yeah. what do you like to eat? Now, um, uh, so one last question about storytelling, because I'm going to jump back even before, even further back into your life, into the comedy part. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, were, you a, were you a storytelling comedian, or were you sort of more of a, uh, uh, just a sort of a jokes, like a one-liner kind of comedian? Oh, no, it was stories. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, you got there's some good some ones? good ones. Yeah. Yeah. I think the best one... Um, so at the time, I think now, now uh, the the more mass-produced one is called the Diva Cup. Mm. But um, back in the day, there was a rubber version, not latex, and it was called a keeper. Okay. Which a weird made, term, but sure. Yeah. Okay. Made made your bit smell like Canadian Tire, because um, it was rubber. It was very weird. But the the joke that I told um, repeatedly in front of room roomfuls of people involved get uh lose i couldn't i had to change it and i couldn't get it Mm. in my own body it was in my body and uh uh i was um i was at this person's house that i was currently dating and i needed help he wasn't very uh happy Mm. to help (laughs) and um and i and and so i i tell this story where uh, you know he you know he came in and he um kind of inched towards me and had his arm as far away from me as he could, and his head was like actually out the door and facing away from me. And um, he, uh, he managed to pull it out, and it, it, fell. <laughs> it fell with like a smack on the bathroom floor and splattered. And of course, the, the tile was like a very pristine white. And, um, and then he made a really great sound when he ran away, which was, <laughs> And... Uh, and, and the best part was I, I actually told that in front of uh, my, my family were in the room one, at one point. Nice. One of the times. Did, and, uh, was there, there's like three different keeper punchlines there. Yeah. All right. I'm presuming you used one of those. Like was he, was he, he was obviously <laughs> not a keeper. No. It was clearly more of a keeper than you wanted it to be. Yeah. Like yeah. there's, there's yeah. so many good keeper jokes. Yeah. Diva Cup has It writes itself. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, now that I think we've somewhat lightened the mood. Mm. Uh, why don't we hear a story from Joey? Joey, everybody. This episode of the Stories of Tell podcast is brought to you by the Peggy Sue Collection. The Peggy Sue Collection, because fashion is a force for good. Head to our website, www.peggysuecollection.com and insert in your discount code hashtag SWDTConfused to receive 15% off of your final purchase. a PhD and I kind of feel like this is a hilarious joke like I shouldn't have it I'm sitting in her office the interim chair of the department her shelves filled equally of books and photos of either smiling children or handshaking adults a desk between us she tells me we are two peas in a pod seeking refuge in intellectual thought she says we are alike she can tell because we both carry around the same tough bravado. That it is clear that I too, just like her, had grown up an ignored child, surrounded by adults distracted by their own traumas. 
A feeling of barf comes from the pit of my stomach and rises to my throat, and I can taste bile. The flavor of acid. My mind is racing, and I am flooded with that familiar feeling of panic. Spurred by memories that I had no idea she could see. My eyes and mouth corners downturn from the feeling of disgust. That this near stranger is comfortable enough to say such things. To me, at our place of work. I'm confused by this rushing feeling. I'm consumed by this rushing feeling that is only relieved with a hard sob session. And she tells me that I have to toughen up to make it in academia. I feel betrayed. Toughen up? Do you know what it took me to get here? Do you know what it'll take to continue? Coming from a very rural situation in Manitoba, where the person in high school who had the greatest potential wound up taking over ownership of his parents' towny gas station, I don't think much was expected of me. I never felt smart. I was never one of the people who tutored others. In fact, I was tutored, and mostly in math. So, Paula can't help you. <laughs> At one parent-teacher conference, my math teacher told my parents, with me in the room, that I just wasn't that smart. But I could be. If I didn't flirt with the boys so much. Fun fact, I was extremely shy and talked to almost no one in school. But some boys paid attention to me and I was blamed for it. We were out for drinks after working on a conference paper together. My prof, his partner, and me. I feel so grown up, like even though I'm still a student, I somehow stumbled on the world of adulting. I dreamed of becoming friends with my professors, of having that academic pub type relationship where each of us are human and capable of being friends and colleagues. This particular evening, while we drink fancy cocktails at a piano bar, we talk and laugh on special, or sorry, that word's not even in here, we talk on topics of social theories and sci-fi TV. His partner, who I'd also recently become friends with, said she was tired and wanted to head home. But she didn't want to break up the fun, so my prof and I stay and keep talking and laughing and drink more. When it is time to leave, my prof and I head in the same direction. We live in the same neighborhood. We hug goodbye, something that seems normal enough in this new world of adult academic life. To hug a colleague even though there is an unbalanced power dynamic seems normal. It comes out of nowhere when he kisses me. My mind racing, a common thing for me when around academics who abuse authority. I try to figure out what is happening. We both have partners. Wait, does this matter? I don't want this kiss. Of course we are flirty, who isn't? but sexual contact goes beyond, making intention clear out of private thought. And the complete denial or ignorance of this power dynamic, he has control over how I might do in academia, in my career, in my future. Another betrayal, I think, with someone I trust not to make things complicated, to not make things about them, all while laying some claim to understand me, what I need or want. We continue to work together, though less so than before, my own reservations stuffed down for years in order to just continue. 
It only becoming clear to me in recent months just how inappropriate that was, how pissed off I am now. Toughen up. Do you know what it took for me to get here? Do you know what it'll take to continue? I'd say I was a B student in high school until someone mentioned to me near the end of grade 11 that the only grades that count are in grade 12. And that if you do well enough, <laughs> you can even get scholarships for university. So after never having tried before, I spent all of grade 12 studying. I graduated fourth in my high school class of roughly 125 people and managed to have my whole first year of university paid for. This publishing workshop is uninformative, I think. But shit gets stupid quickly rather than just boring. This prof, who admittedly has published dozens and dozens of books, is telling the 15 or so students that the key to success is to stop saying no. He makes deliberate eye contact with the women in the room. You need to say yes more. You need to say yes to everything, even if you don't want to. This was a few years ago, before Me Too snuck into daily conversation. I look around the room. Everyone seems uncomfortable, even the men. Seeming to mull over, we're all mulling over the possible meanings behind this guy's words. He continues. Women, you need to put off having children if you want to succeed in publishing, in academia. Though not personally, I'm not a child-rearing type. I had a friend who was pregnant and in this room. How the fuck could this guy tell us not to want the things we did? I raised my hand and said, um, as a sociology prof, I kind of assume you're familiar with gender dynamics. Um, and that things are not the same for everyone. Doesn't your wife stay home with the kids? Isn't that how you get everything done? It feels cathartic to say this to him, to defend choices of all kinds. He says these words out loud in 20 or 2000 fucking 14. And the problem, he's not altogether wrong. Women do have to make different and difficult choices in academia. Women are not raised to take the time that they need to hide from the world, to be successful in the mental athleticism that is academia. I had familial responsibilities too. My mom had asked me not to do a PhD, to not move away, to stay close to her, to take care of her. How dare he say we have to say yes more? Does he know at what costs? His ease of this comment ignores the complexity behind his words. And I leave the room convinced that I'm gonna drop out. Instead, I toil away for another three years and feel angry about this advice almost every day. Toughen up. Do you know what it took to get here? Do you know what it'll take to continue? Nearing the end of my undergrad, my department chair encouraged me to go for a master's degree. But that potential was stymied. My undergrad supervisor, thesis supervisor, said that they would not sign off on my submission because my writing was so bad. We had been working together for three years. They had never expressed any concern for my work before. The first of many academic-related panic attacks and self-doubt-a-thons ensued. 
Somehow I finished, but banished the idea of grad school from my mind until four years passed. Funding season, a major time to show just what you're made of. For the two-page research profile, it takes a minimum of six weeks of full-time work, which means putting everything else on hold. Paragraph one, succinct overview. Paragraph two, research question and plan. Paragraph three, methods and analysis. Paragraph four, why I deserve this. Writing and rewriting and editing, the 17-page accompanying documentation with resume, GPA, and other credentials to prove your worth. The three, level, three letters of reference. And the consequences of not getting research grants? Large grants beget other grants, large and small. It's an open secret that if some boards find your work valuable enough to give you money, then others are less critical when you apply thereafter. You've already proven yourself. I got numerous grants, but not the most coveted in my field though I applied every year. My research was not very popular in Canada, not a hot topic. Soldiers wore trophy photography as something that solidifies us versus them. Another rejection letter, another time to drink and sit fully clothed in my bathtub. <laughs> Sometimes I filled the tub with water and other times I had more sense to just get in without water, but you know. <laughs> the bathroom is a soothing place for me. This particular day, I waited to open the letter until the end of the workday, being smart not to smear my productivity with potential disappointment. This whole day, however, I talked myself up, convincing myself that it was possible. This could be my time. And so I opened it and casually said to myself, don't be too upset if you don't get it. You're doing fine and you'll continue to do fine. But secretly wishing and hoping. <clears throat> We had many applications this past round and we're impressed with all of them. We regret to inform you. In I go, tub unfilled, <laughs> with a bottle of my favorite potato vodka. I'm crying, hard sobs, feeling yet another year of disappointing myself. After a while, my face and my eyes hurt and I stop. I look at the brocade wallpaper. It looks like broccoli art and it Gives me a bit of relief for a second. I run my hand on the cool smooth smoothness of the tub. The ping sound is loud and echoes each time I place the bottle back down to the bottom of the tub. I'm tough. Fuck you, I'll get through this. I reach that point where I cry myself calm, met also with the dulling sensation of booze. I'm once again sardonic and sarcastic instead of sad Joey. I've been doing this PhD for years now, and every day I awake fresh with unrealistic hope to accomplish more than is possible in a single day. I take a long swig and say to myself, today is the day I finish my PhD. I laugh uncontrollably at the idiocy of this statement. How is it even possible with so much left to do before any real chance at finishing? But it somehow becomes a mantra, and I say this to myself for over two years every day, particularly when I feel so bogged down with responsibility and deadlines and innumerable tasks. Today is the day I finish my PhD. That day quietly came, August 31st, 2017, my new birthday. 
This PhD matters to me because I can't believe that I actually finished it. It took seven years. The markers I have of it are as follows. Four sole authored publications, the highest achievement in all forms of academic publishing, two of which are in top tier journals in international, in international journals in my field. An academic who shaped my thinking even cited me. I taught academic writing to other grad students for the last few years of my PhD, which is a great fuck you to my undergrad <laughs> uh, advisor. I won best student paper at a prestigious conference a few years ago. I've done research in five countries, even though I didn't win those, that major grant. I did manage to get a pile of money over nine years. But all of this doesn't matter, because at this level, everyone has professional stats like these. I did lose a lot. Consider these Joey stats on the things that I had to say bye, goodbye to. A dear love of my life in the form of a sarcastic, miserably lovable cat. I had six apartments, one in another country, 10 different coffee shops and five local pubs. <laughs> 84 eggs that resulted in menstrual cycles. A body once fully healthy, I now have three lifelong illnesses all invisible, all manageable, but deeply frustrating at points. I gave up a livable wage and instead took home a net of thirteen dollars to $19,000 each year after tuition was paid. I said goodbye to, a, to 100, yeah, that's a big number, 130,000 written words that didn't make it into the final version of the dissertation. Yeah. <laughs> I've missed many important moments in my family, to my family. I had three primary relationships, one was polyamorous, and so I also had three other lovers and one non-sexual life partner. I have none of these relationships now, and I'd be lying if I said that the PhD had nothing to do with this. All considered, I had to say goodbye to the whole lifestyle of academia. I hated who I'd become in this environment and who I was surrounded by. The things we were expected to do, expected to be, Toughen up? No. I smartened up and walked away. Subscribe to the Stories We Don't Tell podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, leave us a review on iTunes. For more information about the podcast, blog, and live events, find us on Facebook or visit storieswedonttell.org.